This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Well, it's a frigid day here, and I'm hunkered down at the vice, cranking out some bass bugs, uh, which takes me back to the day that I met our guest, Jake Schutz of the Montana Fly Company. Jake, welcome to the February Room. Thanks for having me, Justin. You bet, man. We appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're busy filling preseason orders up there in Columbia Falls. Um, you've been in the industry a long time, lifelong fly angler, uh, hoping you can uh, dig a story out of the coffers and share with us today. I think that's a great way to start. Um, after thinking about a few of the fish that were memorable, uh, that were either landed or lost, I thought it may be as much fun to share a, a humorous story about a fish they didn't catch, if that's cool with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. We love those. Right on, right on. So I'm in my second year, third year, something like that, guiding down in southeast Idaho on the Henry's Fork, and we'd stretch up in the Madison, Yellowstone Park, that whole area. And uh, Lynn Sessions was, uh, was a really well-known regional guide. I learned a lot from him in, in my early years. Uh, in probably again, my second or third year, he called me and said, Hey, do you want to go down and, and, uh, and guide in Puerto Fuego, Argentina? And I just kind of yelled yes over the phone and he said, cool. And he hung up 
And I had to call him back a minute later and say, Lynn, I don't, e- I don't even know where Tierra Fuego is on a map. Uh, and he told me, I said, okay, cool. And I hung up again, uh, got pretty excited once I started, you know, reading about what was going on down there. So the story is it was my first time throwing a two handed rod ever. Um, and although it can be done with a single hand rod, it's a hell of a lot better down there to be throwing a two hander. So I bring all the gear down, uh, you know, more rods, reels, fly lines, you know, all sorts of terminal tackle than you could ever use in 10 years in a duffel bag. And I start having at it. Um, we kind of figured out, you know, how to get the line out there and, and get some good swings and started to catch some nice fish. But there was a specific pool on this property where you couldn't be in the water at all. You're in about a 10 foot high bank. And there would be fish that would kind of, uh, that would roll, you know, on, on the bank side. Uh, so you just, you couldn't be in the water. So I decide I'm just going to go ahead and throw this 13 foot eight weight up over my head with two hands and rocket launch it worked for us from, from this, you know, specific perch, uh, throughout that season. Um, and 30 as, as you and anyone else that knows anything about Tierra del Fuego knows. 20, 30 mile hour winds is, is a daily occurrence. Um, and you can still fish in 40, 45, right? But it's hard. So I had about a 35 to 40 mile an hour wind at my back while I'm standing up on this shelf, uh, you know, this, this bench, and there's not a tree for a mile behind me. And I see a couple of fish rolling, and I'm pretty fired up. And I think I had a tungsten headed size eight, like super prints on. And I started just jacking this two-hander up behind me, thinking I'm going to get it done. And I, I feel something weird in my back house. Like, I can't feel the line, the, the rod loading at all. So I fire a big back cast up over my head as hard as I can with both hands, and nothing's happening. So I look back, and there's like 70, 80 feet of line literally piled up in a ball 13 feet above my head, right behind the rod tip. Um, and I, I, I just kind of duck my head and threw both hands forward and that super prince hit me in the side of my head in the temple so freaking hard not only did i go down but i was out it knocked me down and knocked me out rod out of my hands i wake up i don't know three seconds later five seconds later blood coming down my face uh tail tucked between my legs reeled up all of my stuff and Got back in the Jeep and went back to camp. That, that was the end of that day. So the Super Prince knocked you out? Literally, literally knocked me on the ground. And I saw cars and went out for, I'm guessing, only a few seconds. But I've never, never got the back cast more than 15 feet behind me, uh, threw it forward and literally knocked myself down with my clock. Man, does that wind down there just drive you nuts? I mean, if there's one element that fly fishermen, myself included, hate its wind i'll fish in anything but you know a a 40 to 50 mile an hour wind just kind of ruins my day does that get does that just get to where you're you're just tired of it all right so let me lay it down like this so if if that wind ruins an hour which then ruins your day now throw that into a eight hour day 10 hour day 12 hour day into a seven day week into nine to 120 days in a row and yes you absolutely become uh it's almost like a mental switch of it's like water torture like you hear a drip of water and you just start to internally change right 
uh, the first year down there, I had an old Filson ball cap that had, you know, like the internal ear flaps that would come down, that would fold down, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, so I wore that thing every day, and it didn't matter if it was hot, cold, windy or not. You just got used to covering your ears all the time. And then by year two and three, uh, I think we were down there for five years. Uh, you know, we were bringing headphones, earplugs, you know, foamies, anything you could do uh, to cover your ears. Yeah, it just drove you absolutely nuts, which is also why you had to run uh, rods. Because, uh, you know, you have an ability to fish seventy, you know, uh, 50 to 80 feet. Uh, pretty easily in a 50 mile an hour wind, uh, given you don't have to make an aerial back. So that was that was a huge. Well, that's testament to how awesome those fish are. Because if anglers are willing to pay that kind of money and endure that kind of travel for those kind of conditions, those fish must be something else. Well, you 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 uh, and anyone that's steelheaded, you know, knows this. But you you take the people out of the equation, you take the development out of the equation, you throw yourself into what looked like. Uh, you know, just kind of a, a, a central Wyoming landscape, that wind rolling 24-7. And you're swinging your fly, head down, hand in your pocket, you know, or you have a customer with you, you know, kind of next to you, and you're, you're, you're fishing with and through that, you know, that customer and that rod. And all of a sudden, that line gets tight, then it gets a little tighter. You keep your tip down, it gets a little bit tighter. And then you see, you know, 15 to 23 pounds of brown trout, silver, maybe, uh, maybe colored just tighten up and start backflipping, you know, down the run. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's an unbelievable feeling that's, that's hard to match anywhere. I don't know that I could do it. I really don't. I don't know that, uh, I don't know if I could take the win, man. I'm, I'm kind of a, kind of a softy when it comes to that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear, I hear you. I hear you. And it was just waiting for that, that next big, that next hard pull on that on the on the end of that leader is 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 what kept us out there in the wind now i mean if it was blowing you know much over 50 you know we we would we would drink whiskey or mate on the bank and literally just lay in you know find a, a, a little a little pocket of trees and lay there i mean we wouldn't fish at 70 miles an hour wind which we would see down there but that was not that was not ever um but definitely you know 20 to 30 was something we dealt with daily and now a brief message from our sponsors Introducing the Trist All-Fly Kit, Composite Development's latest game-changing innovation. Utilizing the same butt section, the All-Fly morphs from 5-weight to an 8-weight via interchangeable sections. Need a little more length? Pop the extender into place and the 9-foot rod becomes a 10-footer. All housed within an ingenious tri-folding magnet rod tube, the All-Fly is the most versatile fly fishing tool ever devised, negating the need for multiple rods. Switch from delicate presentations with tiny parachutes to hucking gaudy coneheads. This package must be seen to be believed. Go to cd-fishing.us, click the video tab, and see the Trist All Fly in action. And remember to go fishing. You know, last summer, uh, my family and I rented a cabin on this pretty little lake in northwest Montana. Uh, never been there before. And, uh, you know, went out on the water poking around. I was seeing some really big bass, but I couldn't get them to eat a fly. Um, my my six-year-old kid was catching them on uh, on plastic worms, you know, hucking them by himself up, up against the docks and stuff, which was pretty awesome to see. But I couldn't crack the code, and uh, I ended up heading into town one day, and I didn't even know that you guys were located in Columbia Falls somehow. And I saw your storefront, 
went and knocked on the door and, uh, and you and another guy came and answered and, uh, and lend me some advice and, and gave me some, some poppers and, uh, and sent me on my way. And I got to tell you that night I caught this awesome bass. He came up and, you know, classic largemouth mouthy came up, followed the popper and, and just crushed it. And, uh, and it was sweet, man. Um, your company, Montana fly company, um, specializes in developing patterns to help flying anglers like me catch more fish. Can you give me some background on MFC? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. It's a it's a really cool history. The company um, was started by Adam Trina back in 1998 out of a, basically out of a suitcase and a, and a you know like a four page pamphlet of some bugs. And he was a fishing guide for uh, a number of years out of the Missoula, Montana area. Um, and I think that speaks to kind of who we still are today. So when you look at our team from Adam all the way, you know, all the way through, uh, the group of us that, uh, that helped move the company forward, we, we all, uh, have guided and, you know, fly fished and professionally guided for, for extended numbers of years. So the idea of a fly company that was, you know, really founded by a fishing guide. And he has since, you know, continued to, to move fishing guides in, into the team means that not only do we fish and understand uh, what fly fishing is about, what fly tying is about, what fly patterns are about, uh, but we've, we've all spent a lot of time on the water, uh, not just catching fish, but helping people that don't really fish that often catch fish. So I think the spirit of Montana fly, you know, comes from uh, uh, living on the water, which, which to me is pretty special. Yeah, and you guys have developed uh, some really cool stuff. I was just poking through a fly bin the other day at a at a fly shop up in Kalispell and um, and looking at some of the new patterns, the streamer flies. You know, I bought a bunch of cripples, um, the stuff that I don't care to tie anymore. Um, so, what's the process for developing flies at Montana Fly Company? Uh, there's a couple different processes. Uh, number one, we have a fantastic group of, of partner designers that, that we work with. Um, you know, guys like Juan Ramirez, Kelly Gallup, the, the list goes on. We have a great group of, of you know, 30, 35 guys. So I apologize. I don't have time to mention them all, uh, but a great group of designers. And, and these guys work with us throughout the year, uh, you know, to let us know what they're working on, what they're fishing. Uh, what they're guiding with, if they're guides, uh, you know, how um, professional guides are doing with the patterns, if the fly tire is not specifically a guide, uh, tech, you know, typically they're, you know, dispersing those flies amongst regional guides. And then they give those flies to us and say, this is what we've done with them. Uh, this is why we tied it this way. This is kind of a problem we were trying to solve. And and then they, they let us take a look and, and say, you know, what do you guys want to do with these? Should we roll them? into the catalog, uh, you know, for the next year and offer them to fly shops across the world or not. Um, and and, and we, we put a lot of stock into uh, the stories that our designers give us on these flies, right? Uh, sometimes a fly might look a touch different than what we're used to, um, you know, but we trust that, 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 that boots on the ground testing to say, yeah, it does look a little different. Yeah, the materials are a little different, but this fly hunts uh, and, and we'll give them a shot, right? And then at the end of the day, uh, the sales of the pattern, uh, you know, kind of judge whether that pattern will live or die in future years. But it's a really cool partnership uh, with these fly tires that, that we have um, to share ideas with. Uh, the other side of it 
um, are all of us in our experience coming together uh, saying, hey, we may blend up a pattern that's not uh, specific or original to someone's vice, uh, but it's a basic idea or a, a truly tweaked or changed to make something better idea of a fly that we know will fish. And uh, we'll kind of draw that out, sketch it out, maybe tie some samples, uh, get that to our factory to give us some production run samples, and then we'll fish those flies uh, and distribute those to some of our other team members and say, hey, you guys fish these. Uh, and, and then come back and have uh, those patterns available to fly shops, the same fly shops across the world. So um, definitely some internal development uh, with our team here as well as a lot of external partnerships uh, and, and development through the design. Pretty, pretty cool system. And you guys are, are represented by dealers all across the country, all across the world? Uh, we are. We are. Uh, the majority of our business is, is in the U.S., but we have some fantastic distributors and dealers uh, in, in basically all continents uh, as well, which is, which is really cool. So our products, you know, you can find our product in, you know, every part of South America, you know, Western Europe, Russia, you know, all over the U.S., Canada, uh, Mexico. It's pretty cool. Wow, I didn't realize that, man. That's that's impressive. So you guys are uh, like essentially a global fly company now. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's been great. It's been great. I imagine it's been a pretty interesting year for you all, given the pandemic. It it, it has been. It's been a it's been a very interesting year, and and I can elaborate that uh, on that as as much as you'd like, Justin. Um, on, on a real basic level, I think those uh, of us that find ourselves in the outdoor industry, uh, you know, got really lucky at the end of the day with, with uh, how the, the, the business and economic side of, of COVID has worked out. You know, although we feel for obviously every single person and or small business uh, that has struggled through it, uh, it you know, it, it's put a lot of people outside, whether it's on mountain bikes uh, sitting in hot tubs, fishing, right? Anything that's uh, that's that's out of doors, uh, obviously has seen some some substantial growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's been good for for us folks in uh, in the outdoor industry. Um, yet, um, you know, being an international business, uh, it's also had its challenges for sure. No, no doubt. So, um, obviously, supply chain has has been a, a, a major issue uh, for some more than others. Uh, the, you know, the, the international outfitting, uh, industry has definitely, that was definitely a very, very difficult year for the, the, the traveling angler just didn't travel. Uh, but the local fly shop, regional fly shop and outdoor store, you know, had those local people spending more time on local and regional rivers. So, uh, and, and, and any watershed, you know, lakes and lakes and streams alike. So that, that's been great to see. Kind of a comeback of, of people fishing more in their in their regional areas and they all need bugs they all need good bugs everybody needs flies and, and we like to think that uh that we make it as good a fly as anybody absolutely um I, you know i found that your flies are they're durable um the, the proportions are, are right on dry flies which isn't something that you see um in all commercially tied flies um and getting back to that uh you know that kind of stringent fly development system that you guys have in place where you have guides that develop stuff um, and, you know, test it through yourselves, through other anglers. Um, what are the qualities of a fly that make it not only a good fly on the river, but, but one that will sell in bins? Because I do know that there's a difference there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say there's I would say there's three parts to that. What goes into the fly, who puts those parts together on the fly, and then to your third point, kind of that bin appeal idea, you know, what's the end look of the fly, regardless of the quality. So um, we start with with the highest of quality in raw material. So the hook, the bead, uh, the, the feather, and the grade of the feather, uh, and then how we grade the individual feathers on a pelt or on a skin, uh, you know, what kind of hair we would use, how we grade that hair, what kind of, you know, what flies we use, certain grades of hair on, you know, those would be a few, uh, a, a few examples of, of, of how that raw material uh, piece of it works. So we're picking only the best of the best on, on, on basically all of it. Uh, and then from there, it's design and how those materials are put on, you know, are, are put together. In the actual construction of how those materials are applied to the hook matters immensely uh, from, you know, how tightly you are, you are uh, wrapping dubbing on a thread for a dry fly or, or uh, you know, the sparseness of a dubbing and a dubbing loop on a nymph uh, down to thread tension. You know, how all of our fly tires who are excellent uh, you know, apply the correct tension of thread to the hook throughout the tying process. Yeah, absolutely, man. And um, you guys also do make um, those raw materials available to those of us that tie some of our own flies as well. Um, I just uh, tied a bunch of steelhead patterns for an upcoming trip uh, and using your barred marabou, which is really good stuff. It's long, it's wispy, and uh, and it, I find it far superior to a lot of the other marabous on the market. Um, so tell me a little about the materials that you guys, uh, that you guys sell as well. Our material division is, uh, I would say that the, the, the vast majority of our business is in the fly category. So we're, you know, we're a fly tying, uh, a fly company that, at heart. And then to your point, the retail materials, we're looking at these things saying, man, we're grading top, top notch material. Let's throw this in a package. And, uh, and, and, and we, we love to hear, uh, you know, people's stories of, of using our materials and why they were slightly different than the competitor and, and how they like them. We, it, it's all about the grade of, of the raw material to start and then what we do to it. But the barring process that you're talking about is, uh, is, is something that came, uh, you know, to us internally here. And I would love to share that secret, but I have to kill you after we were done with this podcast. Recording. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool way we do it. And, and, and uh, although I can't say exactly how we do it, uh, we get very uh, sharp and precise barring uh, with solid deep colors. And, and, and we want to provide that sort of ingenuity and quality uh, to, to, you know, all of our customers um, with any product, right? So everyone likes foam. We all use foam. What can we do with foam that's a little bit different? So we started using our, our printing technologies on foam. And all of a sudden, you tie, you know, a foam beetle or, you know, a chubby or whatever it is, a stonefly. And with our new, you know, printed photo foam, it's actually putting a design onto that foam that's really durable. And prior to that, all you could ever do is put dots or stripes on it with a you know, with a, a Sharpie, which we've all done in the past. So, you know, those sorts of ideas, doing something a little bit different and making sure the grade, that quality is, 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 is second to none is the key to how we're going to continue to expand uh, our, our, our material division moving forward. So 
we're, we're hoping to keep shoving out some good stuff. Well, I hope you, I hope you do. I hope you do. Um, and, you know, beyond just trout flies too, um, everyone should be aware that you guys have saltwater patterns, steelhead flies, um, as I mentioned, some, some really cool bass stuff. So, um, you know, fly patterns for, for all environments and um, all parts of the globe too. Yeah, no, that, that that's right. And, and I think that, uh, you know, twofold as, as the business grows, of course, we're looking for places, uh, you know, to expand, um, with, with kind of our mindset and our, our mantra of why we do what we do, right? Where else can we do these things? Um, and uh, I think the second side of that, though, is that, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, people trout fished. If you lived in New York, you trout fished in, in your brook trout streams in New York. And if you lived in the West, you trout fished your local streams for, you know, browns, rainbows, and cutthroat. Uh, but the angler now wants to travel. They want to, we all want to fish bass. We want to fish bonefish and carpet and maybe try our hand swinging a fly to steelhead or a sea trout or an Atlantic salmon. Uh, or whatever it might be. Um, all of us want to catch a permit, and we know that we're going to spend more time standing than actually catching it. But, you know, the idea is that people are getting out there and, and, and looking to uh, to fish for, for a wider range of species, which has really been fun for us uh, because it allows us to expand, uh, you know, our offering uh, for all of those things. And to, to tie that back to an earlier point, you know, none of us can be experts in everything. So uh, working with our design team is, is awesome there. Hey, you know, teach us something about tarpon fishing, which then means you're teaching us something about tarpon flies and what those flies need to be, and why a certain look or body style behaves uh, differently in a certain water or, or environmental condition, right, that, that might uh, have a fish react in a more positive way than, than on a different fly. So um, when you stretch into you know, bass and pike and musky and then all the saltwater game, it takes having some expertise outside of the office, uh, you know, to help you get there. Yeah, for sure. Um, we just uh, had a gentleman on the podcast, a guy named Paul Dixon, who he's a striper guide and he's also a, a keys guide. He splits his season between um, like Montauk and, and the keys and, you know, fishes for tarpon and bonefish and permit down there. And uh, he was mentioning that, the same flies that he uses for tarpon. He tests his tarpon flies and his permit flies and then takes them up to Montauk and has found that the stripers love the same flies as they do in the Keys, which I found really interesting. And, um, and it's also kind of cool that he has, you know, two kind of testing grounds where he can experiment around. Um, and I, I had not heard that before. Um, and, but that just speaks to the point, like that's the kind of, stuff that only a guide really knows, you know, or I mean, somebody that fishes a lot, but, uh, but when you have those kind of folks developing your fly patterns for you, it's a huge advantage to the rest of us that, uh, that don't have obviously that kind of time to go through the minute details of what makes a really, really good fly and your company sells at that. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and, and I appreciate you saying we, we excel at that. And, but it is active that experience with, with those uh, with those anglers and, and guides, uh, you know, that are out there on the water all the time, uh, you know, testing and, and, and kind of researching what's next in fly patterns. And, it, and it's crazy sometimes uh, to your point of crossover, um, you know, testing a fly in, uh, in, in the salt for a, tar a tarpon and then having it work or vice versa. 
uh, you know, on a striper. And uh, it, it goes back to just general body style, how a fly is put together, what it does when it's in the water, what it does when you slowly move the rod tip, what does it do when you jerk the rod tip, and how is that different from when you strip the line, whether slow or fast, right? And, and you know, what, what their sink rate is, what's their buoyancy level like, neutral or, 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 or do they sink, right? Uh, is there movement in the material? Uh, or is a beautiful looking fly once put in water and moved uh, stiff as a board, right? And so I think when you look at fish, regardless of where they are, uh, you know, they're reacting to, to some aspect of movement. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, on, on that note, uh, several years ago, my friend and I were down in Belize and uh, there was tarpon rolling all over in this back bay. And we just couldn't get them to eat, you know. We went through every fly that the guide had, and they wouldn't—they wouldn't eat anything. And uh, you know, finally, I just—I threw on um, some of these big pike patterns that I had with me um, that I use up here. And lo and behold, the tarpon started eating them. And uh, I think we landed like six fish over the next couple of hours. And uh, I think in in that instance, it was just—it was the movement of the fly. Everything else we were fishing was kind of staticky. Um, just your basic kind of clousers and stuff, which certainly worked for tarpon and everything um, a lot of the time. But uh, for whatever reason, they just they liked the movement of those bugs I had. And it was really cool to have a Montana pike fly work down there uh, in Belize. And, uh, you know, the guide was certainly impressed and, and took all, all the flies that, that I had with me. <laughs> oh, that's that that's a great story. Because I. Uh, Justin, how long were the bike flies? Were we talking four or five inches? Were we talking six, seven, eight inches? You know, they were probably five and we trimmed the tails off. They were, they, they were a toad, man. I, that's what I like to fish for pike a lot. It's a toad style with a longer tail. Um, and we just trimmed the tails down, but they were much bigger than the traditional tarpon flies that, uh, that the guide liked down there for sure. Yeah, right. So you have movement those fish haven't seen in a fly, at least in that area, a size change from from what they, they typically, you know, see and or eat. Uh, re- really cool. And, and it's 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 an interesting point you bring up because I, I, I think it speaks to the fact that all anglers can get uh, uh, can get into a scenario where we only fish certain flies in certain conditions because that's where our um how what do you call that that's that's where that's where your comfort zone is right um you feel your confidence is what i was looking for that you're confident that in these conditions for these fish in this area i use these flies uh and sometimes just like literally blowing those ideas up with something that someone else might say there's no way that's going to work uh, once in a while, it, it does, and it's eye-opening when, when something like that happens. Um, that, that's a cool story. And, Jake, so you guys are based in Columbia Falls. That's your head office, correct? Yes, yes. The company was started, uh, like I mentioned earlier, back in 98 in Missoula, and then within the first few years of its existence, uh, moved up to Columbia Falls and has been here ever since. Do you got another story for me? You got one. Uh, you got one where a fly made all the difference for you. There, there was a time where a fly truly made the difference. Um, we were my wife and I were were smallmouth bass fishing last year, and we're running black leeches, we're running little bait fish, we're running jigs, uh, we're catching you know a couple fish here and there, but we're seeing a lot more fish than we're catching. 
And I literally had not fished a girdle butt or, you know, pack stone or rubber legs, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, I've asked before. Um, but I grabbed a few dozen from MFC's office before we took this specific trip. It was a new place for us. I knew there were some big bass in this particular area. Um, and we're seeing them and we're not catching the big ones. And I said, let's throw, let's throw girdle butts. And for the next probably three hours, we caught the biggest bass of, of the day. We, we had a much better catch rate of the fish we saw. We drank an ungodly amount of Evan Williams uh, Black Label whiskey in the boat. And from that day on, uh, we don't talk about going fishing. We talk about going rubber legging. <laughs> um, the story I want to leave you with is, is truly a uh, kind of representation of, of, a, of a good old professional guide uh, as 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 myself, uh, knowing how to operate a boat, you know, whatever, count the days, it doesn't matter. A lot of days in a boat over a lot of years. Um, throwing down the Clark Fork with my wife. She's my best fishing partner, by the way. And she lands a toad of a rainbow river left uh, right before the river takes a hard bank. And there's a big cliff wall there. So there's a back edge. And I pull into this little sandy back edge to get a few quick photos of, of her rainbow. Um, and she's like, oh, this is kind of weird water. Let's park somewhere else. I'm like, no, we want to get the fish back in the water. Don't worry. I got it. You know, remember I've done a ton of time on the water. I'm a fishing guide. So of course, if you're a fishing guide, you know, you got it. <laughs> and I had the anchor in my, uh, kind of the crux of my right elbow. I'm in about chest deep water and the currents wanting to suck the boat out. And behind me is this kind of, you know, 15 to 20 foot deep channel a pretty heavy current that goes down maybe 500 yards before the tailout. And again, it's a cliff wall all along that bank. So I, I would hold the boat in the crux of my elbow. I would kind of bring it up towards me, let it go, take two shots. She'd dip the fish in the water. I would grab the boat that's trying to leave, you know, put it back in my elbow, bring the boat back to my body. She'd lift the fish, get a couple shots, did that two or three times. And on maybe the third little round of, 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 of two photos, uh, we were done and watching the fish kind of breathe in the water at, at, at Jen's ankles. And uh, we're just really blown away with how you know, great it day had been, how beautiful it is to be out in the spring. Of course, I'm paying attention to her, the fish, how great of a day we're having, how psyched we are. And completely had forgotten about the fact that every you know three seconds, I'm letting go of the boat to take a couple pictures and, and catch it again. When I realized, now I had not touched the boat, and maybe it's been now six to. I reach back to my right hand. There's nothing there. I turn around, and there's my skiff. It's about 45 degrees outside, and it is now doing 360 donuts down the center of that channel, and it's already 30 yards below me. I freak out, set the camera on the bank, jump up on you know, climb up to the top of the cliff wall, and I just start sprinting down river, chasing this boat. And it's now it's 150 yards below and, and out in the channel from um, kind of run down the, to the bottom of the cliff wall, take my boots off, take my waders off, then literally dive in. The water was cold. I lost my breath. I'm like foggy paddling out, finally get to the boat. Uh, which, thank God, you know, we got the boat. I jump into it. And the first thing I do is look around 360 to make sure no one's coming. Well, there is a boat coming rounding the corner above us and it's a camera crew of three guys with this massive video camera on a tripod. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So anyway, dry off, row the boat back, get my waiters and boots, you know, back in the boat, get Jen in the boat. And that, by that time, the camera boat was able to slide by. I said, how you guys doing? And the one guy responds with, better than you. Uh, that was one of the best things we've ever seen while filming. Um, <laughs> I don't know who they were, Justin, and, and to this day, that was probably six years ago, I wish I knew who those guys were because I know they have that entire scenario on film somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that, that speaks to everyone out there uh, that no matter what you've done, how long you've done it, uh, hilarious and stupid things uh, hopefully happen to all of Well, and you know what they say, there's two kinds of guides, right? Those that have lost their boat and those that will. <laughs> That's exactly right. I've always recovered. Uh, my boat, but that was truly a day where I did lose it. <laughs> well, great, Jake. Hey, I really appreciate your time today, man. And the next time I'm up uh, in your neck and I uh, and I can't crack the code, I'll, I'll swing in and uh, you can point me back in the right direction. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.